Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the May 1998 issue of The Northern Light. It's titled The Black Sox Legacy by Joseph E. Bennett, 33rd Degree. Pitcher Ted Lyons was the mainstay during Chicago's recovery. The greatest scandal in Major League Baseball festered for a year before it exploded over the heads of the American public on September 28, 1920. A coterie of eight Chicago White Sox players stood at the epicenter of the disgraceful disclosure which revealed that the World Series of 1919 had been deliberately forfeited to the Cincinnati Reds. The guilty participants in the conspiracy agreed to throw the World Series in exchange for a total of $70,000. The co-conspirators were certain gamblers who planned to profit handsomely by betting on a sure thing. Even though the scheme was executed as planned, Major League Baseball eventually extracted full retribution for the treasonable actions of the guilty players. The consequences of their perfidy reverberated throughout the United States and dictated two decades of agony and humiliation for the Chicago club. The personality on which we focus here was a mainstay of the White Sox throughout those gloomy years of recovery. He was a player whose name meant as much to Chicago's Comiskey Park as that of Babe Ruth's to Yankee Stadium. He was Theodore Amar Lyons, a brilliant pitcher who struggled his entire career to lift the White Sox out of their perennial second division quagmire. The stage was well set before Lyons joined the Chicago organization in 1923, and he had no option except to endure the consequences visited on the team because of the guilty conspirators. The White Sox were the finest team in baseball and a heavy favorite to defeat the Cincinnati Reds in the 1919 World Series. Their awesome lineup boasted the great shoeless Joe Jackson, an outfielder and hitter of legendary proportions, and Eddie Cocky Collins, a premier hitter and one of the best infielders the game had ever known. Their vaunted pitching duet included Ed Sicotti, a knuckleball wizard who had amassed a formidable lifetime record and a mark of 29 wins against seven losses in 1919. His left-handed counterpart, Claude Williams, with 23 wins and 11 losing efforts in 1919, was likewise viewed as unbeatable. Interest in the World Series that year was so intense that the schedule of games was expanded to nine, requiring five wins. Unexplained pitching lapses in fielding and control doomed the White Sox in the first two games, as Sakati and Williams both succumbed to the Cincinnati team. The few bright spots in the World Series were the performances of Eddie Collins at second base, Ray Schalk's brilliant catching, and little Dickie Kerr's two sparkling pitching victories in the third and sixth games. Although Joe Jackson's potent bat accounted for a series average of 375, he didn't hit when it counted the most. The Chicago White Sox lost the World Series in eight games, winning only three times. The Cincinnati Reds were the world champions. Predictably, the entire sports world was puzzled over the Chicago performance in the World Series 
and rumors persisted that something sinister had influenced the outcome. Nothing definitive surfaced until Jimmy Isamunger, a sports writer for the Philadelphia newspaper, broke the story on September 20, 1920. He named eight White Sox players as conspirators in a plot to lose the World Series. He singled out Arnold Rothstein, a notorious underworld character, as a major figure in the illicit scheme. The players accused of deliberately throwing the World Series were pitchers Ed Sakati and Claude Williams, outfielder Joe Jackson, first baseman Charles Chick Gindel, shortstop Charles Swer Risberg, third baseman George Buck Weaver, outfielder Oscar Happy Felsch, and utility infielder Fred McMullen. The revelation was a scandal of catastrophic proportion, and it generated immediate action. Charles A. Comiskey, owner of the White Sox, suspended all eight of the accused players until the charges could be resolved. The suspension decimated the Chicago team. They were in the midst of a pennant race in the American League, and it was near the end of the season. The major league community sympathized with Comiskey's predicament, and the Boston Herald reported that Colonel Jacob Ruppert, owner of the New York Yankees, placed his entire squad at the disposal of the White Sox owner. Ruppert was certain the league would allow the White Sox to accept his offer if it meant protecting the Chicago standing. It was a magnanimous gesture, but one which was not accepted. A grand jury was impaneled, and the eight players named were indicted. A weeping Ed Sakati confessed to the grand jury and implicated the other seven. He stated that he had discovered $10,000 under the pillow of his bed, the reward for betraying his team. Joe Jackson admitted receiving $5,000 of a promised bribe of $20,000. Chick Gandil collected $20,000. The only member of the eight not directly implicated in throwing the series was Fred McMullen. He knew of the conspiracy, but kept silent. All were bound over for trial. Arnold Rothstein willingly appeared before the grand jury, protesting his innocence in the affair. He was never tried. Eventually, he was assassinated for welshing on a debt of $320,000 alleged to have been due to a pair of West Coast gamblers. Arnie's sudden demise occurred on November 4, 1928. The trial of the Black Sox players, as they were christened by the media, convened on June 1921. After extensive testimony, the sympathetic jury acquitted all of criminal charges. However, the trial was not the end of the players' woes. Earlier in 1921, the Major League owners had signed federal judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis to contract as commissioner of baseball. Landis demanded and received supreme authority over the game, with sweeping powers to regulate its administration and mete out punishment for infractions. Immediately after the trial concluded, he issued an edict banning the eight players from organized baseball for life. Judge Landis's stern judgment against the eight players who had defamed the sport preserved the integrity of baseball and retained the respect of the American public. The downside of the entire affair was the fact that the Chicago White Sox team was in tatters. Only a handful of players with outstanding talent remained. Of course, Eddie Collins survived unscathed and continued his sterling performance for several more years. His tenure lasted through the 1926 season. His final two years in Chicago were as a player-manager. Collins was traded to the Philadelphia Athletics at the time for the 1927 season. It is worthwhile to point out that Collins was a member of Wananta, New York, Lodge No. 466. Another prominent member of the battle-scarred White Sox team was catcher Raymond Schalk. He was a member of Litchfield, Illinois, Lodge No. 236. Both of those brethren were eventually inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame, Collins in 1939 and Schalk in 1955. 
Veteran outfielder Harry Hooper was also acquired by the White Sox in 1921 to strengthen their decimated ranks. He was nearing the end of a long and illustrious Major League career when he came to Chicago. Hooper was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1971. Plucky Dickie Kerr, a pitcher of great promise, posted an impressive record of 19 wins against 17 losses in 1921, but closed the season with a career-ending arm injury. The team faced the 1922 season doomed to a steady decline into this league's second division. It seemed that the White Sox might never again reach their previous exalted position. Two new players came to Comiskey Park at the beginning of 1923 as part of a rebuilding process of the shattered team. William Cam, a brilliant third baseman from the San Francisco Seals, was purchased for $100,000. The other addition was a young rookie fresh out of Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He was Ted Lyons, a promising young right-hander who had become a perennial pitching star for the White Sox, one who would add a new dimension to the concept of team loyalty, longevity, and excellence. As it turned out, his physical and athletic qualities were equaled by his reputation for being the most likable person who ever played at Comiskey Park. Ted was a man without enemies. He always displayed a Will Rogers personality. He never met a man he didn't like. One other distinguishing characteristic of the young college star was that he was a Freemason when he came to Chicago, and he embodied the very highest tenets of the craft. Lyons, who was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana on December 28, 1900. Today, his immediate family is gone, and the nearest living relative is Elton Lyons, a nephew living in Vinton, Louisiana. Elton, a former minor league baseball player of considerable skill, became Ted Lyons' close associate during his waning years. Little remains today of the Lions family history for posterity. The future pitching star grew to manhood near the mouth of the Sabine River, which establishes the boundary between Texas and Louisiana. After graduating from high school at the end of World War I, Ted met some young Texas college students at a church function. Inasmuch as he had not selected an institution to continue his education, they persuaded him to enroll at Baylor University in Waco. He entered Baylor in 1919 to begin his studies. During the course of his college career, the youngster drew a great deal of attention for his outstanding pitching talent. He had matured beyond the capability of most college pitchers, possessing a good curveball and pinpoint control, along with an impressive variety of off-speed pitches. He had the pitching arsenal to survive in the major leagues. At least that was the report which reached Comiskey, and it proved to be correct. After graduating from Baylor in the spring of 1923, Ted reported immediately to the team in Chicago. Lyons was in his junior year at Baylor when he decided to petition Freemasonry. Over the years, the university numbered many distinguished Masons, among their alumni and faculty. At this late date, however, the influence which prompted young Ted to seek out the fraternity is unknown. Suffice it to say that he petitioned Waco Lodge No. 92 and received his first degree on February 18, 1922. He passed the Fellowcraft degree on March 19th and was raised on January 23, 1923. Ted Lyons began an affiliation which culminated with a 50-year membership recognition in 1973. A few months after graduation from Baylor, Ted became the youngest member of the White Sox team, where he met two other Masons, Eddie Collins and Ray Schalk. That sturdy trio would bear the heat and burden of the day for the next few years in the effort to rebuild the team. During the 1923 season, the rookie hurler worked a total of nine games, winning two and losing one. Desperate for pitching talent, the Chicago club considered Ted a permanent member of the squad by the end of the year. 
there was never a notion that he required additional seasoning. When Lyons began the 1924 season at Comiskey Park, he was firmly established in the pitching rotation. For the next 10 years, the young right-hander would have a heavy schedule of work, pitching in 40 or more games each season. In 1924, he won 12 and lost 11, and in 1925, he garnered the first of three 20-game seasons with a posted record of 21 wins against 11 failures. His pitching feats were even more spectacular in the light of the overall offensive deficiencies of the White Sox team. The great Yankees manager Joe McCarthy summed it up eloquently in later years when he observed that if Lyons had pitched for the Yankees, he would have won 400 games. Eddie Collins was sold to Philadelphia at the end of the 1926 season, and catcher Ray Schalk was appointed to manage the team in 1927. Ray was nearing the end of a long career which began in 1912. As manager, his playing days were radically curtailed. He held the management post through the 1928 season. During Schalk's two years as manager, Lyons contributed 37 wins against 28 losses while working in 82 games. However, his reputation as a workhorse had been established long before. Perhaps Ted's most memorable game over his 21-year career was his no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox in 1925. Nevertheless, the Louisiana pitcher was never to pitch in a World Series, nor even on a pennant-winning team. The White Sox were nearly always in the second division of a very strong American League in the years Ted worked for the Chicago club. In the absence of a farm system to supply some young talent, the only alternative was to purchase it. That was a costly and usually prohibitive option, especially in the years of the Great Depression. Some outstanding players were acquired from time to time, but never in sufficient quantity to field a championship team. Names as illustrious as those of Al Simmons, Jimmy Dykes, George Earnshaw, and Mule Haas failed to provide the White Sox a championship during the Lions' years. Ted served three years in military service in World War II, from 1943 to 1945. When he returned for the 1946 season in Chicago, he rejoined the club as a player-manager. Now well into his 40s, Lions' playing days were virtually over. Rarely was a player of his age listed as an active player on any roster, but he was available as a spot starter. In reminiscing over Lyons' career, Comiskey recalled that the dean of his pitching staff was the biggest gate attraction of the team and was traditionally chosen to pitch the first game out of a Sunday doubleheader. No player was ever more venerated by Chicago fans than Ted Lyons. Even though the team struggled to survive and provided the fans little to cheer about, they could always depend on Ted to give them an outstanding performance. He completed his major league playing career in 1946 with only five appearances, but continued to manage the team through the 1948 season. Lyons' major league career had been a brilliant one by any standard. He worked in a total of 705 games, accumulating a total of 260 wins against 230 losses. One obscure statistic which often escapes notice is that Lyons won 30% of all the White Sox games during the years of 1925 to 1930. His was a sterling performance for one pitching on a second division club, and one which has rarely been equaled before or after. Perhaps the most notable exception was the great Philadelphia Philly star Robin Roberts. It goes without saying, though, that Lyons richly deserved induction into baseball's Hall of Fame in 1955. Following his playing career, Ted preferred to remain in baseball as long as he was physically able. He coached for the Detroit Tigers and the Los Angeles Dodgers and served as a scout for his beloved White Sox. Eventually, though, he retired to his little home in Vinton, Louisiana to live out his days in peace and tranquility. Ted never married, preferring to live his life as a confirmed bachelor. 
His health failed as he entered the decade of the 1980s, and he began to lose his eyesight. Eventually, he became totally blind. When the White Sox and the Comiskey family planned a celebration in Chicago for Ted during the 1983 All-Star Game, the honoree declined to attend. Even though Charles Comiskey called Ted several times to offer to transport the old veteran in their corporate plane, he remained adamant. The ceremony of retiring Ted's famous number 16 had to be aborted. Friends and former colleagues were sure the famous pitcher wanted to avoid being helped onto the field. He may have preferred his faithful fans to remember him the way he was in the prime of his baseball career, not as an aging figure with disabilities. Ted Lyons' health continued to deteriorate, and eventually he was obliged to take residence in an extended care facility. He died at age 85 on July 25, 1986. The famous pitcher has departed this mortal coil, but his memory has and will endure with a legion of old baseball fans. Proof positive is obtained for that statement by simply mentioning the name Ted Lyons to any baseball fan from the pre-World War II days. It is as familiar as that of the fabulous Ty Cobb or Lou Gehrig. And then let's share, let's see, here's his pitching record. 1923, two wins, one loss out of nine games played. 1924, 12 wins, 11 losses out of 41 games played. 1925, 21 wins, 11 losses out of 43 games played. 1926, 18 wins, 16 losses out of 41 games. 1927, 22 wins, 14 losses out of 41 games. 1928, 15 wins, 14 losses out of 49 games. 1929, 14 wins, 20 losses out of 40 games. 1930, 22 wins, 15 losses out of 57 games. 1931, 4 wins, 6 losses out of 42 games. 1932, 10 wins, 15 losses out of 49 games. 1933, 10 wins, 21 losses out of 51 games. 1934, 11 wins, 13 losses out of 50 games. 1935, 15 wins, 8 losses out of 29 games. 1936, 10 wins, 13 losses out of 26 games. 1937, 12 wins, 7 losses out of 23 games. 1938, 9 wins, 11 losses out of 24 games. 1939, 14 wins, 6 losses out of 21 games. 1940, 12 wins, 8 losses out of 22 games. 1941, 12 wins, 10 losses out of 22 games. 1942, 14 wins, 6 losses out of 20 games. 1943, 44, and 45, he was in military service. And then in 1946, he came back as a manager and a pitcher for a total of one win and four losses out of five games. All in all, the totals are 260 wins, 230 losses, 705 games played. Thanks for listening as always, and we hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.